Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. What if the fiction you read today becomes fact tomorrow? If you think that sounds like magic, you're exactly right. It turns out that the United States of America is far more magical than what the schools taught us. America's history and legacy is extremely complicated, but all Americans, no matter her race, religion, or immigration status, have more than two centuries of great literature we can tap into as common ground. What I want people to do is to be able to look back to American history and see themselves. That's Thea Wershing. She has a PhD in American occultism and taught literature at UCLA. She's now teaching an online class called Practical Hermeticism in Great American Literature. She also has a tarot collection called American Renaissance, coming out later this year, which will feature 19th century American writers and books. Get instant access to the complete 70-minute conversation by becoming a member at patreon.com slash witchesandwine. By the way, there is one scholarship available for this class, which begins in March 2020. More details in the interview. Hope you guys get as much out of the conversation as I did. Always, of course, the zhuzhing. Hello everybody, Chowan here. And today's guest, I actually had her on as one of my very first guests. But I think anyone could become a Pluto babe, and I think all you'd have to do is just wildly approve of your own shadow. I am so happy to be talking to my friend, Thea Wershing. This girl, she has a PhD, she's like so brainy, and her dissertation was actually about an absolutely fascinating topic, and we're here today to talk about that because Thea is going to be offering a class about this in this yep. new class that's being hosted by Jen Sard. Hey, Jen. Uh, and your class is called Practical Hermeticism in Great American Literature. And exciting, there is going to be a scholarship Watch till the end of the video to find out more information about the scholarship and how to enter into it. I was sort of like in and out of an English PhD program, simultaneously training as an astrologer and always in this fight with myself, like, oh, do I just take clients or do I keep getting this education? And I thought, well, why not combine these interests? So I wound up looking at the history of occultism in the United States through the end of the 19th century. And part of my question was, Okay, if all these like medieval witch beliefs came over, uh, like on the Mayflower, essentially, right, like in all these early uh, immigrations to America, and then at the end of the 19th century, we have an occult revival, like, why do we say that nothing was going on in between, right, that the Enlightenment shut it all down? And it turns out that's not actually true, that there was a lot of interesting occult activity throughout the Enlightenment and throughout the early 19th century in advance of the big occult revival. I wound up just having to reconstruct 
all of occult history, basically, to, to sort of prove that I had a reason to be looking at uh, these texts. And because I did it through an English department, I wound up focusing a lot on the occult novel. And to me, this is a novel that can be a novel of awakening to occult states of mind. Probably the most influential theologian on all early Americans was this guy named Jakob Boom. And he wrote a book about speculative alchemy and Christianity. So all the mystical weirdos who came over to America, and there were a lot of them, and most of them went to <laughs> Pennsylvania. Why? Because there was freedom of religion or New York. The Puritans really wanted to strip a lot of the mysticism out of religion. But then we have people like the Quakers who in their early history really believe that man could translate himself into a god. So there's just like a lot of wild hermetic beliefs uh, in the early history of the country. And one of those examples would be Kelpius. So Kelpius is this guy who comes to Pennsylvania with a group of people in the last decade of the 17th century. And they had a little uh, collective uh, society called the Society of the Women of the Wilderness. And a lot of people think they were Rosicrucians. But the big problem is that if you were actually a Rosicrucian, you were not allowed to tell anyone. This really dovetails into the occult as fiction. Okay, so it's a great question. Uh, early 17th century, all these tracts come out and they talk about a worldwide secret society. And so people become obsessed with this society and the only way to sort of get a Rosicrucian's attention is to announce yourself in print. Um, just to give an example of how popular this was, uh, Rene Descartes, okay, <laughs> the famous philosopher, advertised himself as like, I want to be part of this uh, transformative secret society. You publicly announce yourself in print and then the invisible society would find you. And then if they found you, you could never walk around saying, I'm a Rosicrucian, like you're just supposed to heal the sick uh, for free, dress modestly. So now as a scholar, I will say that there's no evidence that a society existed at that time. There is zero evidence. Like we don't know who wrote the tracks. We have some guesses. Uh, the person who wrote the tracks may have done so as a joke. But then what happens is like around the world, this idea really catches fire. And so we have all these societies starting up because of what may have just been a work of fiction. Even, you know, societies like Golden Dawn, OTO, we could say Theosophy, they're taking a lot of their mythology from uh, Rosicrucian societies as well as Freemasonry. And that really does go and dovetails into your topic about great literature or yeah. just basically fiction and how it becomes reality. So like something I did because my life was really marked by the new age, right? Like I grew up in the 80s and I was a teenager in the 90s. So then I got into researching the history and a lot of the history comes from the Theosophical Movement founded largely by Madame Blavatsky, and she comes out with this American publication in 1875 called Isis Unveiled. So if you start, you know, digging into, like, what's the background of the New Age, everyone goes back to that text, Isis Unveiled. Well, it turns out she ripped off a novelist for a lot of that history. So she goes to Edward Bulwer-Lytton's novel Zanoni and Last Days of Pompeii, which was like a best-selling novel in England. Okay, so Last, Last Days of Pompeii was kind of like the gone with the wind of its time, you know, just like made such a big deal. She's a notorious plagiarizer. She did oh, I didn't know that. 
Oh yeah. Oh, she's got, she's got a pretty checkered reputation, but you know, that's not to say she wasn't hugely important and influential for this religious movement. Right. So it's like, I'll quote my friend, Amy Hale, who says, uh, the deeper you dig into the history of any tradition or belief system at the bottom, you're going to find a hot mess. To me, it's very exciting the way that religion and the occult dovetail with uh, creative fiction. And we can look at the history of Freemasonry as yet another example, because Freemasonry borrowed from adventure tales. They're a private society, not a secret society, I think is what they say. Um, But basically, this was a group of men who came together originally in the UK about uh, early 18th century officially is when it starts. Privately, men were going to these lodges and tapping into the occult secrets of the universe. But there's an elaborate um, system of taking degrees, which is very theatrical. This is a precursor to a lot of ceremonial magic. And Freemasonry is another uh, example of a society that hasn't been static through time. There's been all kinds of competing lodges. Uh, For example, like if you take my class, uh, the Illuminati was a branch of uh, Freemasonry, which was real, it's not made up, they're actually real society. And uh, there was a perceived Illuminati threat in early America where people thought these demonic, rebellious, uh, illuminated wizards were going to come over and infiltrate the young country and mess up America or radicalize America. There was a huge like political dust up in the United States, um, masonry versus anti-masonry, and there, there's actually a political party called the Anti-Masons. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, he his autobiography, mm-hmm. I mean, he completely made shit up, you know? He created a myth of himself. Mm-hmm. And like when he went to France, I heard that he was like an old man, but he like wore like a Davy Crockett sort of hat, you know, he was like really playing up that that glamour magic. They've created a very distinctive American character that we've all been yeah. taught in school. And so when people ask me about America, I mean, who knows, I may be telling them about America filtered through all the stories I've been told. Absolutely. And I agree with you that Old Ben was um, very cognizant of self-fashioning, right? Um, so he really like knew how to to play a character very well, and um, he got his start as an almanac maker, and that essentially means he was an astrologer. And so we kind of forget that, right? That's like not a part of the history that we emphasize, but that was how he made his fortune. That's how he was able to retire at a young age. Was that he he was selling popular astrology essentially, um, and we tend to look at the stuff that Franklin wrote in those almanacs, but I'm like, no, look at all these pages of ephemerides where we're talking about the planets. But in Ben Franklin's day, there were a lot of people who maybe didn't know how to read a book, but they could read an ephemeris. These were the most popular publications in America at the time. Because, you know, maybe you couldn't read, but you needed to know where the moon was to plant your seeds or take a bath, or you wanted to consult the stars before you went on a long journey or, you know, made a big purchase or something like that. So one of the writers I'm going to introduce in my class is Charles Brockton Brown. He was America's first novelist. He wrote horror stories. <laughs> and just to give an example of a book I would teach a lot at UCLA, uh, in this book, it's about uh, the patriarch of the family spontaneously combusts because he has a mystical vision. So the inner light, right, the Quaker inner light causes him to 
cash on fire. The rest of the book is about this man named Carwin who has superhuman talents as a ventriloquist, which is the whole history that's connected to demonology, right? Kind of speaking in these other voices. And he convinces an innocent man that he's the voice of God and gets that man to kill his whole family. He has a lot of novels about these uh, shadowy wizard characters uh, all around 1800. So think about that, right? That's like supposed to be um, prime enlightenment time, right? And this guy is talking about <laughs> a wizard and the secret societies he may be a part of and all the superhuman powers and demon raising powers he's learning in these mystical orders. I frankly have enough content to teach a bunch of these classes, but I was like, let's just start small. Like, let's just do short stories. Uh, but when it comes to novels, there's just an amazing novel by an early black writer called uh, Of One Blood by Pauline Hopkins. It's sort of like the novel takes place in two layers. So like if we could talk about um, like Mists of Avalon, so it's like, oh, there's real life. And then there's this like alternative witch space. But she does that in Africa. And it's so cool. So it's like the uh, main character, the protagonist, kind of wanders into um, this occult other world where he's trained in superpowers. And I think she based that novel on a real African-American man named Pascal Beverly Randolph, who also writes an occult novel. And uh, Randolph, this black man, was hugely influential on theosophy. Lebowski ripped him off quite a bit, right? So we could say like, yeah, there's an American black man kind of standing at uh, the forefront of the new age movement. He has this whole um, taxonomy of incorporeal beings that might communicate with you. And uh, he also writes a Rosicrucian novel and claims to be a true Rosicrucian. How does literature generate occult thinking, occult practice, or vice yeah. versa? I think a lot of people who practice magic seriously are going to be like, well, occult practices, <laughs> it's a technology, it's yeah. for reals. You know, it's not like we read, I don't know, like Harry Potter and do magic like that. And at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, hi, H.P. Lovecraft, Lovecraftian magic. That's a big thing, sure. too. If we look at the history of occultism, you know, I've named a bunch of examples now, just like looking at Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and how they actually pulled their mythology from fiction. And we could think of a modern example like L. Ron Hubbard being a science fiction writer and then writing a very popular novel that winds up becoming a religion. Okay, so I don't know that there's that much difference. Um, I lean pretty heavily on the work of Jeff Kripal and he's a professor at Rice University. Uh, particularly the book I'm thinking of is Authors of the Impossible as well as mutants and mystics. And he gets really into how uh, when you're writing fiction, you're kind of awakening this creator's mind. You might be writing a story and it's creating an alternative world. So there's a lot of parallels with that and magic, like kind of naming or stating your world into being. And another thing that Jeff talks about is how weird the act of reading is so here's where I really identified with what he was saying because I was such a reader as a kid. So if you're reading someone else's words, right? Like, let's say I'm reading a book by Jason Miller, which I just did, and it was fantastic. Um, like, I'm kind of in his head, like in that weird moment because of what he has written down, right? Like, he's a magical guy. Presumably he's put like 
his essence into this book, right? Um, maybe literal magic, but also like he wrote it. These are his words. And so my mind is fused with the mind of Jason Miller as I am reading those words. Like we're kind of in a trance together, even though he's not there. Reading just winds up being this very like porous act where I'm learning from his energy or his essence, even if I just think that my, my mind is kind of like processing the language, like something else is going on. And so Jeff kind of puts a question mark over that. Like, we don't know exactly what's going on when you're reading, but it is kind of like you're in a trance. And so I feel like that's so true for, you know, me reading an author from five centuries ago or me reading Plato, like I'm able to somehow connect with the mind of the author, mm. even if they've been dead for centuries. And I think there's something deeply occult about that. And so like a lot of these novels that I'm talking about in the 19th century, um, some of these people were practicing occultists. Instead of coming right out and saying, I'm an occultist, they're just dropping all these hints. And I would liken it to historians of queerness, actually. So like if you go back, so presumably people were queer before the 20th century, you know, like before we had these terms. If you go back and look for queerness in the 19th and 18th century, you're going to see these little tells that are for other queer people. And uh, I would just go back to another point here, too, and talk about the power of story. I think stories are just incredibly healing and can rearrange our sense of reality. And if you do any type of, you know, alchemy, psychological work or, you know, mental magic, basically we're telling new stories. And I think stories are more relatable a lot of times in straight magic. So this is a, a chapter in my dissertation where I talk about how Poe wrote this statement of his hermetic belief in this book called Eureka, which no one has ever heard of. I think the most occult figure of those times is Poe. I think he was reading the Corpus Hermeticum and Agrippa. And like, I think he was pretty studied in the occult and that comes out throughout his stories. And I think our relationship to the occult shows up in how we've kind of ghettoized Poe. I know that's like a contentious term, but it's really appropriate for how we've understood Poe because for most of the critical history, we've said like, ooh, that's nice, but like that's for little boys, like spooky stories. It's like for teenage boys or something. It's not real literature. And people haven't really looked at how uh, Poe's use of the occult is what has made him really the most popular American writer of that time. I mean, we could say Emerson, right? Like Emerson's been really influential, but Emerson's been influential in these very exalted spaces. Like he's influential on other philosophers and that sort of thing. But just on a purely pop culture level, it's all Poe. Like Poe invented freaking everything, you know? <laughs> just the detective story, like science fiction. He's got all these notable firsts in American literature. Um, so I think he just really predicted where pop culture was going. Like, I think Poe would feel very at home with our current pop culture. Um, but he wrote this other novel very much about those ideas, right? About the thin line between material substance and spiritual substance called uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. And it's become this famously enigma enigmatic novel that people become obsessed with. Okay, so like Toni Morrison had stuff to say about this novel. She thought it was very racist, but a contemporary African-American writer named Matt Johnson uh, wrote a best-selling novel called Pym, 
And it's all about a black professor who gets obsessed with Pym and is trying to figure out what Poe's talking about. And so I think what Poe does in that novel is essentially write a, a novel of initiation. There was like a whole Masonic genre, like these novels of initiation where in Freemasonry, you're not told the answers. The answers have to come from within. Uh, so there's a bunch of occult novels that do this as well. Like they won't explain what's happening. Like you as the reader have to create your own meaning. We could look at our own age as a parallel, right? So just in the last 10, 20 years, we've seen this explosion with Harry Potter, right? Like, oh, <laughs> like how many permutations of that have we seen in culture? And I mean, when I was growing up, the television on in the 90s was not like exclusively supernatural. Right. And now like that seems to be all there is on offer, right? So it's like that pop culture is telling us something. And in fact, it's true. There's a lot of people getting exposed to witchcraft because of the proliferation of those shows. Uh, so that's why I think it's important that Melville writes an astrology novel. Like we don't tend to think of him that way, right? We think like Melville man goes out to ocean and fights whale and it's so noble and it was an epic story. But the scene that everyone talks about in Moby Dick, it's called the doubloon scene. Um, so on this coin, the doubloon, there's um, 12 astrological signs. And we get this vision of all the characters talking about uh, what they see on this coin. So it's this wonderful example of subjectivity, right? Like, oh, Melville does subjectivity so well. It's like the wheel of human consciousness. There's all these different ways to approach life. But that's astrology, essentially. <laughs> so he's taking the philosophy of astrology and really foregrounding that in this book that we've now decided is like so American. It's the great American novel. Actually, he wrote this wackadoodle novel prior to Moby Dick in which it was about uh, some Polynesian islands, but I think it's really the planet Mars. I have a reason for thinking that. Um, the novel's called Marty. There's just like a lot about outer space travel. And then um, each island is a different zodiac sign. Melville's just doing pop astrology. <laughs> It's not that complicated. He's just kind of like, Libras care about clothes. You know, there's like a whole <laughs> section in um, Marty where he's just talking about how fluffy Libras are. And he really like cannot seem to stand Libras because they're so shallow and foppish and all they care about is manners. And I mean, that's pop astrology, right? We see that on Instagram today when people are making their jokes about Libras. Well, what's real and what's not? What's fiction? What's not fiction? That yeah. starts to come into play. I mean, again, I just kind of revert back to Jeff Kripal because he's such a fun thinker. And I was having this uh, argument with a friend recently about archetypes because I was like, yeah, no, I just think shit is real. Like, I don't think I don't think it's just ideas. I don't think it's a world filled with ideas. Like, I think there are actual gods out there. And uh, we were just trying to find a name for what she believes. And we determined on uh, Jeff's idea of the flip. You know, so it's like if you get stuck in material reality, it's not the whole picture. If you get stuck in subjective, psychological or spiritual reality, that's not the whole picture. It's both. Right. You can't necessarily um, distinguish these things, which is a very hermetic way of approaching reality. Right. It's as above, so below. You know, so if you want to say like, oh, what's the difference between fiction and magic? I just think there's a lot of overlap. I don't think that there's a clean distinction to be made. But, you know, at the end of the 19th century, birth of the new age, the occult revival, which we're very much still in, that was an American product. It started with 
spiritualism in upstate New York and it moves to Blavatsky and then it goes all over the world. So I think there's something interesting, right? Like why did that happen in America? I think that's exciting to think about. All of us, like, who are not actually indigenous people, our history in America is probably, what, like 300 years old at tops in America? And so when I think about, yeah, literature from past 150, 200 years, you know, if you're an American, no matter what your, where your ancestors came from, there, you have this American identity, you know, like, I came here, like, as a young child, but I still consider myself American, and what's a uniquely... American, like as in like recently American thing that I can tap into. And that would be the literature. That would be the art. Oh, I love everything you said. They're so important. Okay. So, uh, Victoria Nelson wrote a great book called the secret life of puppets. It's phenomenal. Um, but one thing she talks about is how, if you're not a Christian, right? Like if you just, are not into mainstream America, um, you're not Jewish, you're not Muslim, you're not part of like an organized religion, you look to the arts, you look to art and culture as your religion, right? So people read Whitman to have some kind of religious experience. Like let's say you're going through a shitty time and you're like, my favorite poet, I'm going to pull out leaves of grass and get excited about the world again, right? And that might help you more than actual magic in that situation. Um, You know, same with art galleries. Like I love this. We can go to art galleries and you see church behavior at art galleries, like people dress There's this hushed awe. You know, like, where are people ever quiet? Like, nowhere in our culture except in an art gallery. You're like, oh, I can't disrespect the art. So we have this sort of, like, religious feeling about the arts. It's not like I've had ancestors here for 100 years, you know. I've had ancestors here for maybe, like, 20, 30 years. Mm. And yet, what can I tap into in terms of ancestral magic that isn't just my Korean roots? Because, you know, I am an American. I consider myself Mm -hmm. a Korean American. Culturally, I'm an American. To ignore that, I think, is to cut my magic in half. Because culturally, I am an American. I just need to, I need to accept that. I grew up here. I grew up in the school systems. I heard the stories of America growing up, not the stories of Korea. The school systems taught me the myth of America. I I love that you brought that up. And the term for that is syncretism. Right. So I think it matters that even though um, Americans participated in a genocide of Native Americans, yet we're still so shaped by Native American belief systems. Right. And um, the indigenous plants and the indigenous scenery. Right. That's all part of um, the syncretism of alternative American religions and as well as African populations. Right. Like we would not have the same belief systems if they hadn't blended with conjure and um, uh, the belief systems of Africans who were here as enslaved peoples, right? It all kind of mixed together. If you're somebody who's really into art, if you're really into culture, and I think most people are, you know, especially people yeah. in the occult, I think we intuitively understand just what creates magic is also what creates art. They come from the same source. I just think most Americans are like, ew, at least, you know, in the liberal circles that I travel in, because you know, I'm not hanging out with right-wingers. It just doesn't happen to me. So they don't seek me out. Um, so over on the left here, people just have so much hatred of themselves. And I think that this is such a core thing, like your nationality. I don't want to like wave a flag and say I'm American and that is more important than everything, right? It's never going to be that important to me. Um, but to not be working against yourself, right? And so I think to be able to take pride in your history 
And to be able to look back and say, here's some Americans I can get excited about, whether it's Emerson or like, you know, Gothbitch over here. I love Edgar Allan Poe. We can go back and reclaim those literary ancestors then. My ancestors aren't just my Korean ancestors. Right. You know, they're also American cultural figures because I grew up in America. This is the culture that I'm most familiar with. And again, it's like, where do you get the most effective magic? It's by knowing where you're from. Yeah, like being in the place where you are is what comes to mind for me. And I think there's a way that we can do that and also acknowledge the past. So like, I don't feel this divide about that. Like I just feel deep awareness of, okay, I'm on indigenous land that was gotten uh, unfairly, you know, and with violence and, I know slave labor built this country, like I'm aware of all those things, but I can still integrate that into my identity and say, I'm still an American, right? (laughs) Like, um, and there are good things about this country too. As you mentioned, reading in itself, it is a magical act. It's, It's definitely not like a mundane thing, like doing your taxes. No, it's true. I mean, it's the original magic, right? Like magic words, like stating your intent. And I was thinking about you know, again, Jeff's idea of reading is something that puts you into a trance state. And there's a great book by a guy named uh, Joshua Gunn called Modern Occult Rhetoric. And he talks about Crowley and Blavatsky and how Crowley uses this beautiful ornate language that doesn't always make literal sense, right. but it's intended to put you into a trance, right? If you speak mm-hmm. those words out loud or you listen to them, you go into an altered state of consciousness. And he says a similar thing about Blavatsky, except that he talks about how bad her writing is, like how vague and confusing (laughs) as um, a way that like thousands of people can read her words, but all come away with their own sense of reality. If you're an American, especially, this is a type of ancestral veneration. Yeah. To to learn (laughs) about this thing that you haven't been taught in school. What people will get out of this class is a sense that they can connect to early America without feeling mortified. Because I talk to so many people who are like, oh, the Puritans, like, we're the worst, you know? (laughs) Like, oh, the English colonists, like, we're just, like, unilaterally awful. What I want people to do is to be able to look back to American history and see themselves. That just helps me feel, like, more on solid footing and, like, being able to connect to my ancestry and be proud to be an American, which is such a contentious thing to say. I mean, it's hard for me to say it without like barfing a little, (laughs) but that's kind of what like all of this work that I've done has been about, right? Just like learning to accept who I am, my ancestry, where I live, you know? Again, the class name is Practical Hermeticism in Great American Literature. It's being hosted by Jen Zart. Thea and Jen have generously offered a scholarship to take this class. So they have one spot for somebody who writes down in the comments below, What is the question you'd like to pose to our audience to get the scholarship? Okay, so what I want to know is if you've ever had an occult experience or entered into an altered state of consciousness via reading a novel, okay? So it could also be a short story. Let's not use poetry, okay? Because (laughs) poetry, the beautiful words can kind of put us into a trance state, but is there a story that has enchanted you or opened up a, you know, altered state of consciousness 
put some effort into it, you know, write a couple of sentences and then Joanne and I will look at all the best answers and we'll hold a drawing and we will announce it uh, on our different social media channels. Anthea, thank you again. One of my first guests coming back on the show and telling yeah. us about a part of American history that almost no one knows about. True that. So thank you so much. And um, I so appreciate you getting this information out there. So thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off.